Hi, everybody. Ram Das here and now. I am back, Raghu, and I'm with, uh, we won't say how old a buddy, but someone very, very close to me, and we have done so much work over the years together, Ramesh Wardas. Ramesh, welcome. I am an old buddy. We are about the same age, probably. Okay, forget about that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But... uh, I do want to say to everybody this, uh, tell everybody, this podcast is going to be centered around the release of Ramdas's new memoir, Being Ramdas. And Ramesh and I, I don't think you've been on, on Ramdas here and now. Have you? Maybe. Maybe with Ramdas, I think, Possibly, sometime yeah. back. Yeah. Would have been a while ago. Yeah. Um, so. We thought it would be appropriate to, I'm going to, you know, just talk about how this book came together with Ramesh. And uh, we're going to play some excerpts that, are, you know, are a very, very small sampling of what Ramdas, uh, the teachings that he represents, the life that he represents, the incarnation. But I think there'll be enough to uh, give, give enough of a picture and certainly a little bit of a picture of the book because it's all going to be related to that. And, uh, yeah, so happy to have you here to do that. But maybe talk a little bit, Ramesh, about uh, what happened. I th- I th- were we sitting around with Ramdas going, hey, it's maybe time for you to put together a memoir. I mean, how did that happen? And, and how long ago was it? Uh, it uh, actually started 10 years ago, or uh, a little more now. Uh, we had... Uh, just come to uh, the end of working on uh, Be Loved Now, which uh, came out in 2010. And um, uh, so we had actually finished the work, I guess, in 2009. Um, and um, uh, I approached him with an idea because we really had a good time working together. That mm. I think was sort of the basis for the uh, um, whole project uh, and others along the way, uh, which you've worked on also, starting back with uh, Love, Serve, Remember, which is <laughs> what our foundation is uh, called. Yeah. Which uh, Raghu is the executive director of as well as the chief podcaster <laughs> and chief, uh, podca- chief pottery <laughs> cleanser <laughs> chief pot cleaning yes yes and chief cook and bottle washer is what my mother used to call yeah. it <laughs> yeah and uh when i first approached ramdas about doing the memoir though he really uh he was like um you know, first of all, he didn't want to look at the past particularly. I mean, his thing is be here now, being in the moment, then not living in the past. Um, but, um, and the other aspect of it actually that he was very reluctant about was he really wanted to be very careful about not hurting anyone's feelings. He mm-hmm. was quite emphatic about that. Mm. Um, so, uh, we talked around it, uh, a little bit and, um, after that first, uh, refusal, we 
came around to the idea that um, we would look back at his life through Maharaji's eyes and try and, uh, not try, but just feel what that would be like seeing from that other consciousness that uh, we all have experienced in, you know, so many um, dimensions of our lives. Uh, even though, you know, we probably have uh, uh, barely an inkling of the vastness of that state. But mm. um, that is the common thread for so many of us. And um, Ramdas finally got used to that idea and he started to like it. Mm. So um, we started going through things and we, it, it wasn't particularly uh, a uh, linear uh, exercise, you know, start at the beginning of his life. And uh, as it turned out, we got to the end of his life. Um, and, uh, talk about being in the moment, right? Yeah. Hmm. Um, but I think in the process, it was really, um, um, uh, you know, fascinating. And I, I was going back and forth to, uh, Maui maybe three times a year. And we were working on Skype together also on, the, on, uh, and sometimes just on the phone. Um, and uh, there were a lot of uh, ups and downs for him, I think, uh, including one uh, episode when we were talking and uh, it was uh, maybe in about uh, 2010 or maybe 2011. And uh, um, he was alone in the house and uh, it was at a point where he still had the uh, strength to transfer himself from his chair to his wheelchair and was pretty mobile still. And um, we were talking about a passage in a book that we both had, and he um, uh, transferred to go get his uh, uh, chair and um, get into his chair and to go get the book so we could discuss it. Whoops, I have to turn something off here, Raghu. I had the news going there. It's okay. It's all part of podcasting. No, no. problem. Okay. I think we got <laughs> I'm hoping my dog who's right next to me doesn't start snoring. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> if our dog comes back, which she may, she's going to want dinner. <laughs> it's dinner time oh, on so the East many. Coast for dogs. Yes. All right. So continue. So Ramdas was transferring to his chair. He was transferring and I didn't hear anything back from him. And finally, I hear uh, a voice that says, uh, I fell. I'm on the floor. And there was nobody in the house. And I'm in New York and he's in Maui. Oh, and what am I going to do? Um, oh. And um, I tried to reach uh, Dasima on the phone. And uh, as it turned out, I mean, this is a whole other story, but there was a, uh, a young woman who was a devotee, who's a musician. Um, and um, she's a cellist. Mm. Uh, you probably remember her. I say her name is something like Aisha. No, that's not quite it. Mm. Anyway, um, she was 
nearby and she gets this thought in her mind that she's got to go see Ramdas. Mm. And oh. uh, she drives over, she doesn't hear anything and then she calls out and he responds and she goes up and helps him to get onto the bed um, and um, it turns out he broke his hip. Oh. And uh, when he fell, getting transferring. And uh, uh, he ended up in the hospital, had a hip replacement, and that was a whole other saga. Yeah. Mm. Um, and at another point, <clears throat> I was out there uh, working with him, and uh, I was out uh, walking early in the morning before we at uh, breakfast and uh, I get a call from my uh, son in New York and there's mm. sirens in the background. And that was uh, my daughter had been uh, run over on her bike, 14 year old. And uh, she died because she didn't make it out of the surgery at the trauma hospital. Um, and Ramdas helped me, I, I don't want to say cope with it, because there's no way to do that. But um, um, it was an intense moment. And it's still ongoing. And that mm. was seven years ago. Why don't you mention, though, what he said to you regarding well, a young person dying? Um when we heard that she hadn't made it out of surgery, I looked at him and said, uh, she didn't get to finish her life. And he looked me straight in the eye and he said, yes, she did. And it, it, that view, which we had been looking at his life through that lens of seeing an incarnation and uh, uh, that took me out of my own uh, pain and self-pity for a moment, enough to see that um, mm. that uh, was the case with her, too. Mm. And, as, you know, as much as I didn't want to accept that, there was no choice. Yeah. That's mm. what... Uh, Trungpa used to call choiceless awareness. Yeah. <clears throat> good karmas you know, to be... It's been a journey. Yeah. Good karmas, though, to be with Ramdas in that moment, who had done a tremendous amount of work in this area over his lifetime. That was a big part of his offering, certainly around death and dying. And uh, so to have that right with you in that moment, um, yeah, and and then I was uh, with him when he died. Yeah, right, right, that's right. So Ramdas did pass just after the book was completed, not fully, yeah. but mostly. Um, and uh, Ramesh happened to be there at that moment with a couple other people. Yeah, I had stayed to uh, read the uh, updated manuscript to him and... Uh, 
we didn't get much done because he was, I, he had another infection, which I guess is what uh, took him out really finally. And, and uh, it, uh, he was kind of groggy from antibiotics and we just hung out. And KD Krishnadas was there for uh, the first week or so. And then uh, he had to go and uh, there were just a few people. Mm. Well, what we have t uh, today, I mean, I'm getting a little lost in the moment, <laughs> but, yeah. Um, yeah, but we have here several uh, excerpts that we've gotten that represent different parts of Ram Dass's teachings, life, and his... These are from his talks, not from the book. Let That's right. These are from his talks, that. but certainly they refer absolutely to what goes on in this book. The book is extremely comprehensive. It is what five hundred and fifty pages, or something like that. Yeah, plus about plus sixty-five pictures. pages of photos. Yeah, so uh, it is very, very comprehensive. Uh, so the first, um, and we're going to play this, and then we'll just talk about it for a minute the first one is uh, we are calling relative reality and uh, I'm going to just play this and then we'll chat what happened to me in brief from inside myself was that after I took the uh, psilocybin mushrooms in 1961 um my entire understanding of reality changed. And it changed my entire life, and you're paying to hear about it. <laughs> Isn't that fun? <laughs> I love it. I love it. Basically, what happened was that I went from seeing a reality that I had been trained to interpret as reality, as absolutely real. I went from that to in a moment, or in the few hours, to moving through planes of consciousness to understand that the reality that I thought was real, like Richard come down to reality, my father would say, was indeed just one reality. It was relatively real instead of absolutely real. What happened to me was exactly what Einstein did to Newton. <laughs> because Newton said, these laws are absolutely real. Mechanistic theory, I remember learning it in high school as absolutely that's the way the world is. And then basically Einstein said, it depends on where you're standing in time and space and so on. Now, I can't um, overestimate the significance of the shift of consciousness that goes from seeing reality as absolute to seeing it as relative. It opens up a vast terrain of possibilities. It's what William James said when he said, our normal waking consciousness is but one type of consciousness. While all about it parted from it by the filmiest of screens, there lie other types of consciousness. We may spend our entire lives without knowing of their existence, but apply the requisite stimulus, and there they are in their completeness. Whatever their meaning, they prohibit our premature closing of our accounts with reality. 
That was uttered by William James. And I was basically thrown out of William James Hall at Harvard for arguing that the intellectual analytic mind was only one plane of reality because that was heresy within that temple. So opening the doors of that, you see what it did? It cast me out from the dominant theme of our culture, which is basically a, a form of scientific materialism, humanism, scientific materialism, right in there. It's rooted in the feeling that technology and science have paid off so much in changing the quality of our lives. And those models, a way of defining reality and how to interpret what's real, have worked so well, we can't really question them. The predicament is they are relatively real, but there are other realities they have nothing to say about. But science really has a hard time accepting there are other realities it can't say anything about. It's like the issue of consciousness versus the brain. Science really has very little to say about consciousness. It's got a lot to say about the brain. So since it's got a lot to say about the brain, what it says then is the brain and consciousness are really one thing, isomorphing. But our technology doesn't allow us to measure it from the point of view of consciousness, so we'll work on the brain. But we know when your brain is dead, you aren't. Somebody that has seen relative reality says, like they do in India, when you die in India, they call, call it dropping the body. Isn't that an interesting image? Well, I'm going to drop my body today. Who's the eye that's going to drop what? In the West, that's a very peculiar expression, because when your body isn't, you aren't. So it seems to me that what happened to me in 1961, and that certainly got reconfirmed a thousand times over when I met Neem Karoli Baba in 1967, was that there was a, a larger context in which I existed than the one that I thought I did and that everybody around me was telling me I did. Relative reality. So I... Uh... <sighs> I mean, I remember just the first talk that I heard from Ram Das, which is probably a year and a half after you heard the first one, or, or even more, I can't remember, mm -hmm. but Ramesh was at Ram Das's first chat. It was more of a chat. It was yeah. an eight-hour kind of a an chat. An eight-hour yeah. chat. <laughs> About <Yeah>. 70 people. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, relative reality. So obviously the one huge thing in first hearing Ramdas and his take on on reality basically through his own experience and everything that happened to him at, uh, as a psychology professor as a uh, psychonaut with Leary at Harvard as a uh, a yogi in India so and he talks here a lot about the uh, relative levels right so and so that perspective, once it's a huge thing, seeing reality as absolute, which is how we all come into this. Everything we think is as real as it gets. And then seeing, uh, seeing it all as relative, it opens up a whole new uh, territory. And um, uh, this, until that happens, nothing happens. 
And, and that may happen. Uh, of course, it happened through psychedelics with Ramdas. It happened that way for many of us that went over to India. And uh, but it can happen in many different ways. Reading a book now, they, you know, just uh, uh, being at a Krishnadas kirtan, something happens that's ineffable and leads you to believe. Wait a minute, there is another territory here. Is uh, yeah. So it's it's the perfect. Uh, opener for Ramdas in terms of I feel what he offers on an immediate basis is a radical shift of perspective. And yeah, and, and I think that uh occurred to you know that's that's what shifted for me when I first met him. Hmm. But uh the uh in a sense these three lives that he had you know, combined in his incarnation, being a psychologist, the psychedelic work, and becoming a yogi. Those three uh, viewpoints all came to bear in the way that he saw that, uh, you know, he talked a lot about planes of consciousness, so that he saw the different uh, ways that uh, the mind... uh, uh, is a, a projector of reality. And mm. uh, that started with psychology. And then uh, when he started uh, um, working with psychedelics, especially that first uh, time that he took psilocybin and he saw his various selves as external to his uh, inner being. Mm. His role yeah. as opposed to his soul, which he, is often how he referred to it. Yeah. And, um, you know, in talks, he used to do that uh, thing where he would uh, kind of take you through changing channels <laughs> yeah. in your mind. You know, visualize your, your uh, head as a TV uh, screen and uh, what's uh, just uh, change the channel to the astral plane, the causal plane, the soul, uh, the physical plane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that uh, was one of the really uh, fundamental parts of his uh, uh, identity also. And so much of his teaching and uh, as, you know, you'll find in the memoir, his, his uh, journey is about identity. Yeah. And uh, and in this next little uh, excerpt that we're going to play, it is a recounting, brief one, of his first psychedelic experience and, yeah. and which you just uh, referred to and how that radically, radically changed him, changed every one of us. And uh, it's wonderful to think, actually, Ramesh, of how they're getting so, you know, they legalized psilocybin in uh, Oregon, I believe, for therapy, therapeutic mm. purposes. Uh, and maybe more than that, and I'm not sure, but I know that at least is, is what's happening. And I think it'll happen more and more because of the work, especially the work of MAPS and Rick Doblin. Yeah. Who is very connected to Ramdas, came later, and uh, he... Uh, you know, he's been doing this work, you know, since he was a young man. And it's come to the point where 
their government is starting to give permission for this to be used in uh, therapy and so on. And it's so uh, powerful a thing. And There's one uh, part of the book, actually, where uh, Ramdas uh, uh, mentions Rick doing this uh, study when he was uh, still an undergraduate. Mm. Uh, he, re- he did a review of the uh, what was called the Good Friday Experiment at Harvard. Yeah, that's right. And it was really uh, fascinating. And the, the Good Friday Experiment was uh, where they gave... Uh, psilocybin to divinity students on a good Friday and they all uh, were down in the crypt under the uh, chapel where this sermon was being given. And it was, uh, you know, the classic uh, double blind experiment where uh, nobody knew who was getting the psilocybin and the other uh, students, uh, half of them got, uh, I think it was niacin or niacinamide. Mm. Um, which gives you a rush, kind of, you know, of that niacin flush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then it very soon became very obvious who had actually gotten the psilocybin. <laughs> who had. But yeah. um, the follow-up study that Rick did demonstrated that um, 25 years later, the people who had gotten the psilocybin, uh, the divinity students, many of whom had become, um, you know, uh, priests or um, works as stayed in religion in one way or another, that that had been a formative mystical experience in their lives. Mm. Amazing. And Amazing. I think that his work in maps is really, you know, continued from that uh, yeah. inspiration in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. So let's play this uh, excerpt and... Uh, uh, you can. It's uh, we're calling it first trip, which it is for Ramdas. Yeah. Here you go. When I first um, experimented with these uh, mushrooms, the Tiananmen, these flesh of the gods, which were used in Mexico by coranderos and uh, oracles, in order to override their habitual way of looking at the universe, in order to see things freshly or innocently. Okay, so. What the mushrooms did was they overrode my way of conceiving of the world, so I saw things afresh. And what I saw was that I had built this incredible structure of mind called ego about who I thought I was, and little by little it fell away. And my initial experience was so powerful in that sense, because what I met was a part of me inside that had nothing to do with who I thought I was. And it had nothing to do with that which is born or that which dies. It was behind that. It was the first time I had gone behind that. Let me, just the emotional part of it was that I had taken these mushrooms and I sat in a darkened room on a couch and I suddenly saw a person in the dark over there and I looked across and there was a being that was me but it was me in one of my social roles. It was almost a caricature of me. It was me with my uh, pilot helmet on. I never wore a pilot helmet, but I was a pilot. And there was my pilotness. And now it was separate from me. It was about eight feet away from me. And I thought, all right, I'll let that go. Because I was a psychologist, remember, a professor. And I was saying to myself, interesting hallucination you're having. Okay, seemed reasonable. I was analyzing it as a a scientist. So I let go of that, and then all, one by one, all my social roles appeared across the room. 
of lover, of professor with mortar and, you know, all of that stuff. Each of my roles appeared, and one by one I let it go, until something appeared which was like my childhood identity of myself. And I thought, if I let that go, I will be, um, I'll have amnesia. I won't know who I am. And that's what this mushroom is going to do to me. I thought, oh, well, I'll let that go too. And so I did, and I thought, at least I have my body. And then I looked down, and there was the couch. And I looked from one end of the couch to the other, and there was no body on it. Now, my mind can say, as long as I want hallucination, but what I experienced was fear. Because being a materialist all my life, a philosophical materialist, there was nothing that prepared me with my eyes open to not see my own body. All right? That's like the, your worst dream. You don't exist anymore. And I was about to scream for help when I thought, who's about to scream for help? I mean, if I'm not my personality and I'm not my body, who's frightened? And at one moment, I touched a part of me that had nothing to do with all that. And it was so joyous, so unexpected, because what it felt like was I had come home, something very familiar to me. And it was a way in which I experienced a connection to the universe that I had never understood before. I'd never had it. I was always doing good in order to be appreciated or prove that I was adequate or control this vast uh, situation that was out of control. And I ran out in the snow and I somersaulted and then I went home, it was a big snowstorm, and my parents, I came back to my parents' home and I went to shovel the walk, it was about four in the morning, and my parents appeared at the upper window looking scoldingly like nobody shovels snow at four in the morning. And I looked up and I saw these were the people I'd always listened to who always told me what was right and wrong. And I looked inside my heart and it seemed all right to be shoveling snow at four in the morning. And I waved at them and I threw them a kiss and I went back to shoveling snow. And that, of course, was the beginning of the end of my life in a sense because I had stood up to an authority that ended up my being thrown out of Harvard. So, yeah, sitting on the ceiling, looking down and going... Whoa, <laughs> who's that? <laughs> What's that thing lying on the couch? You know, uh, I love that. That's, that's so archetypical of uh, the power of uh, psychedelics and being able to see you are not that thing. <laughs> you are not. Well, I think the, the, uh, the central experience of that uh, first trip for him was this feeling of being home. Mm. Mm. And um, that was um, also what um, he kept trying to come back to all through the time that they were uh, working with psilocybin. I think often felt uh, um, at least aspects of that, no matter what they were uh, working with. Um, but when he came to Maharaji, that was the dominant feeling that uh, he had. And um, um, I, I know for myself, when I came to Maharaji the first time, which um, was in 1970, um, and um, first of all, I, I realized when I, I got there that Maharaji had come through Ramdas when I first met him because the feeling being with Maharaji was the same as being with Maharaji with uh, Ramdas that first time and um, 
it was this feeling of being home. And it was just a deep uh, heart space. I, I don't, hard to describe. Um, I used to have this experience when I was um, in high school and I would uh, drive out to see my grandparents. And um, I had a very close relationship with them. And it was this uh, just, uh, you know, real feeling of uh, coming back to uh, the kind of um, um, experiences of childhood um, in a really uh, deep uh, uh, sense of enjoyment. Mm. And um, it was similar to that. And then, of course, it got deeper and deeper. How about deep okayness? Yeah. Very deep okayness. And how is it that every person you'll ever talk to who happened to meet Nimgaroli Baba Maharaji, they say the same thing? Yeah. Home. Uh, my thing was, uh, my first thought was, oh shit, that's what Ramdas was all about. Holy yeah. shit. You know, and home, you know, and that home, and it's taken us quite some time to understand that it's not outside uh, ourselves. He reflected it in to, uh, so we could see ourselves. And uh, we've done a lot of flopping around trying to look elsewhere, uh, but... Uh, Half a century later, it's still working on us. Yeah, exactly. So, but the idea of home that, that Ramdas got uh, with this psychedelic trip is uh, very profound and very much... I don't think there's anybody that I know who's taken a psychedelic, you know, from those days up until like now where I meet many, many people next gen, 20s and 30s mm-hmm. and so on. And, and th- their description is exactly the same. Yeah. And they are, that home is, is as profound as uh, any home <laughs> we got into at any stage. So that's in, that is to me living proof of the reality um, of that place. It's just... Uh, of course, trying to hold on to it doesn't really do it. And, uh, and as Krishnadas, our buddy, likes to say, practice makes perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not called practice for nothing. That's yeah, right. Exactly. So um, I know the, yep. uh, uh, there is more psychedelic research happening again now. And I, I know one of the researchers at uh, NYU in New York. Yeah. Where yeah, they've done... Psilocybin research with terminal cancer patients, and they're now undertaking a, a study with um, re- religious leaders, not so different from the Good Friday experiment. Yeah. Um, and those same kinds of things are happening, yeah. and it's deeply experientially. It's, it's, it's helping people with their fear of death um, yeah. very profoundly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Roshi uh, Joan Halifax and uh, her former husband Stan Groff did a lot of work with that, which Ramdas was very aware of. Yeah, at uh, Spring Grove Hospital in Maryland. Yeah, yeah. People came uh, more than once, but once there was a, a rather 
substantial group of uh, researchers that came just to reflect on it all with Ramdas after all those years. But they wouldn't let us record it. Still fear out there. You know. <laughs> so uh, this next excerpt is basically, uh, of course, this we just talked about it a little bit, but Guru found is a little name that... Uh, Let's give credit to Nathan, Nathan, yeah. who you, has Nathan. curated these wonderful pieces, Nathan Wilburn. Um, so, yeah, we've been talking about it, and uh, and I also know, and I guess this also refers to psychedelics and that experience, uh, Ramdas would say more than once, uh, that... Uh, He's not sure, he said, I am not sure what it might have been had I meeting a being like Neem Karoli Baba, Maharaji, without having that psychedelic experience, without having the experience of uh, the re relative reality mm -hmm. and home base is kind of what we're we're talking about and without that it, it it would have been difficult and i see the same thing uh, uh you know for all of us i mean we were obviously a lot of really us young got there that way yeah exactly that, that was what and it helped many of us yeah it, it absolutely helped so all right well this is let's listen to this guru found so we got out of the car at the temple and bhagwan das asked where's the guru and they said the guru is up in the hills up in that hill over there, around the hill. And Bhagwan Das goes off at a lope, but all the way up into the hills, tears are streaming down his cheeks. And I know that we're getting close to something very powerful, but I don't know what it is. And I'm very bugged about the car and I'm sulking in the corner. And you know, I've been smoking too much hashish. So I had stopped a few days before, but I was having the, the, the down effect one has after having smoked for a long time. We rush up the hill. I'm rushing behind him, trying to keep up with him, and I'm being ignored by everybody, and, and I'm just in terrible shape, really, stumbling up this path. And we come out into this field, beautiful sunny day, overlooking a valley, and there's an old man sitting there with a blanket wrapped around him. Around him are about, oh, eight or probably eight or ten Hindu people sitting there. And we rush over, and Bhagwan Das does Danda Pranam, the full Pranam, out flat on his stomach before this man. And he's crying, and the man's patting him on the head, and it's some kind of joyous reunion. And I'm standing by, you know, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to touch this guy's feet? Or, you know, I don't know what to do. I've never seen a guru before. And I assumed if he was crying this much, it must be somebody. But I was too angry to even care, to tell you the truth. And after a few minutes, this man looked up and he looked at me. He smiled and he said in Hindi to Bhagwan Das, have you a picture of me? Bhagwan Das says, yes. He says, give it to him. Bhagwan Das said, all right, I will. Then he looked at me, he says, you came in a big automobile? I said, yeah. You'll give it to me? Well, that really blew my mind. I mean, you know, I wish I could have, but, you know, so I said, well, it's not mine to, not mine to give, and, you know. Well, you get me one like it? 
So I thought, my God, I just got here and he's hustling me. I mean, what kind of a thing is this? You know, what have I done to deserve this? Am I that bad a person that I got to be subjected? You know, and I was, boy, was I self-pitying and paranoid. All the time he's laughing. So he's laughing. He's putting me on. But I don't know that. Costs a lot of money, he says. You make a lot of money in the United States? <laughs> so I used to. You'll get me a car like that? It rides nice, huh? <laughs> Just coming on to me, something fierce, right? Okay. And I'm really angry, but I'm suppressing it and answering pleasantly, and everybody's smiling at me, and I'm smiling at everybody. Then he says, uh, take them for food. And he, they take us to a room, and they give us a big feast. These beautiful sadhus bring us food, the food that the women bring to the guru each day as an offering. And we eat, and then a few minutes later, Bhagwan Das and I are together all the time, and he's the only one I've come with. And this is way up in the remote mountains, there's no electricity up here, nothing going, you know, very remote. Call back to the guru and go back to him, and he says to me, he looks directly at me, right in my eyes, and he said, you were out under the stars last night. Acha, you were thinking about your mother. Acha. Lean back, and then he said, uh, she died last year. Um, she got very big in the stomach before she died. She died of spleen. He didn't ask. He said she died of spleen. Well, the only way I can describe what experience I had at that moment, and he looked at me with a twinkle at that point, now, the only way I can describe what happened to me at that moment is to compare my rational mind to a computer that has been fed an insoluble problem. <laughs> that the computer runs through all of the alternative resolutions of this problem that are in the storage units, and it runs off each of them in sequence. You know, and I thought, well, does he have a telephone? Did Bhag was Bhagwan Das away from me for a moment? Bhagwan Das doesn't even know my mother's dead. How is he going to? Because he wasn't interested in my past. He doesn't know that. I've never said to you know, does, was he reading my mind? Was I thinking about it at this moment? What would that mean? You know, and I went through, but I wasn't even thinking about it. I had even forgotten what she died of. I mean, the spleen, I hadn't even remembered the term of the organ. So the computer went and went and went, and then as computers do, when it finishes its uh, analysis through the storage unit, a little red light goes on and a bell rings and it stops. <laughs> and that is literally what happened to my rational mind at that point. I realized I'd just been overwhelmed. I mean, I ego, Richard Alpert, had just been beaten. You know, there was nowhere to hide. This was, I wasn't high, so I couldn't say this was a drug hallucination. There was a guy doing this thing right to me right then, right through my gross senses. And at that moment, when that computer stopped, it was like a very severe pain in my heart. It was like a really wrenching feeling. And I started to cry. I wasn't crying because I was sad, and I wasn't crying because I was happy. The closest way I could describe it, maybe, is I was crying because I was home. I mean, because, yeah, right. Whew. Wow. That kind of feeling. Like I didn't have to do it anymore. It all 
was all okay. So the amazing thing, though, Ramesh, with Ramdas is especially, well, not especially, throughout his whole life. I mean, the premise of this book is seeing his entire life through the lens of, of Neem Karoli Baba, through his guru, mm-hmm. through our guru, and being able to see exactly how the, the, the family that he was born into, the relationship he had with his mother, with his father, with his siblings, how uh, the school that he went to, the, the relative level of uh, ease uh, financially the, the family had, and all of it, how it all played, like just a little thing. I don't know if you ever even talked to him about this, but, you know, the whole thing Maharaji said, don't take an inheritance from your father. Yeah, he does talk about that. Yeah. And uh, and how and, that changed his relationship with his father. Yeah. But how he grew up, but seeing through that Maharaji's lens, mm-hmm. he grew up where that was what you did. Okay, you uh, affluent family and you're part of that family and and all of the affluence turns to you and and gets, you know, it gets propagated generationally. So he had that in his DNA. So it's not nothing to just, oh, yeah, no problem. And, and of course, Maharaji made him uh, the whole thing. Don't carry money. Same kind of a deal. Don't uh, The saint doesn't carry mm-hmm. money. So he gets my brother Lakshman to carry his money around and drive him absolutely insane. <laughs> <laughs> and then he had to get a succession of people to do that. I'm not carrying money. So he gave all his money and these people were spending it inordinately <laughs> where yeah. he never would have spent it. And he, you know, so just... Those are well, such there are two aspects that came up in the uh, process of the book that I, I want to flag for that. One, um, um, going back to what we were talking about and how psychedelics kind of opened things up to and allowed Maharaji's um, darshan to penetrate and uh, and then allowed Ramdas to adapt to being a yogi so completely. And the the uh, he said that psychedelics in he said this in the book that psychedelics allowed him to um, change planes more easily because he had done so much of that when he was tripping, hmm. and that that. Uh, facility allowed him to be open to where Maharaji was coming from in uh, ways that uh, he might not have otherwise. And that it was like a, a, a kind of a, a ability to be flexible in his, uh, in that view of reality, those relative realities. And then when he met Maharaji, he encountered uh, a different reality which was, uh, you know, so much more uh, powerful being with Maharaji. Mm. Um, and the other thing that we did in the book, which was really interesting, we did sort of a, uh, and it's in the latter part of the book, uh, we've kind of uh, talked about what it may have been like before he took incarnation as Richard Alpert and what that place is of, uh, you know, what um, um, 
sometimes is described as a bardo, but um, um, the in-between incarnations. And, uh, you know, we talk a lot of, uh, uh, in, in, for instance, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, they're talking about what the after-death planes are like and what the opportunities for uh, letting go and getting into the clear light at that point. But the, the part about before you take birth, that was an interesting one. And he talks about what it might have been like um, getting guidance from um, a being like Maharaji to look at the incarnation and know that he was going to be, you know, part of the Alpert family and how this was going to help him work out his power and love karma. And uh, then this uh, kind of um, knowing that Maharaji would um, come into the picture at a certain point and take over, which is what happened. And then, you know, that thing about taking birth and the veil covers you and you forget all about that. And you only know that you're embodied in, you know, as in his case is Richard Alpert uh, in uh, Newton, Massachusetts. Yeah. Remembering wouldn't be good. Uh, maybe not. No. <laughs> Some people do. I, <laughs> and I yeah. suppose uh, Tibetan tulkus, I think, have a certain uh, amount of that. Or Yeah, even uh, then. Others, but, even you know. then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh, that's a profound it's an interesting a, shift though it's part of that shift to seeing it his life as an incarnation as an incarnation rather than uh this life which is what uh you know certainly personally i'm stuck in seeing i don't see anything beyond it and maharaji did i think there's that story of Maharaji with uh, walking with one of the devotees, and uh, he—I think it's in that uh, excerpt, actually, uh, or one of the other ones we're going to talk about that uh, near the end. Hmm. So I won't tell the story. Okay, yeah, let Ram. <laughs> I do that though when I introduce Ramdas. I tell what I like, and it's okay. Yeah. You can hear it. It's repeated. It's you know these things. We've been listening to Ramdas forever, and, and me even more these days because of, yeah. of the work of the foundation. And it, uh, uh, there's always something fresh that I didn't really hear before, or that I, I he 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 just made a little bit of a, a complete uh, fresh perspective on something that he might have been talking about ad infinitum. Mm -hmm. That's that just does the click because he had that power, you know. Um, of, yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, let's listen to the next one, um, which is called The Purpose of Life. All right, let's listen to that. What's the purpose of our life on earth? It's a curriculum that the soul has created in order to explore its own attachments, in order to awaken out of its illusion of separateness, which it created as part of its play. It's not an error. You didn't fall from grace. It's not original sin. 
It's choice. I had an interesting discussion with a Tibetan rascal named Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. He once called me into his room. I just met him once. And he called me and he said, Ramdas, we have to accept responsibility. It's a great opening line, isn't it? I said, so what responsibility, Rinpoche? I don't have any responsibility. God has all the responsibility. Not my, but thy will, O Lord. Giving him a bhakti duelist, you know. He said, you're copping out. And it bugged me because I didn't understand it. What do you mean I was copping out? Then Emmanuel said to me, you have the choice. He said, you can be the victim or you can be the creator. And the victim is when you identify with any part of the form of the manifestation. Your body, your personality, your thinking mind, that's all part of lawful unfolding. That's all the victim. There's a part of you that has no form. That part's the creator. It's not the part that makes affirmations. That's your personality. That's all part of what's being had. Personality, body, that's all in law. That's all form. It's all happening. It's all karma unfolding. That part isn't. Even the experience you think you're free isn't free. And yet there is a part of you that is free, that is creating, that could change anything you want in the universe. The only funny part about it is that were you identified with that part of your being so that you were outside of it and seeing all, you'd see why you had created it that way in the first place. It's like in the Bible it said, had ye but faith, ye could move mountains. But if you had the faith, you'd see why you put the mountain there in the first place. So that from the soul's point of view, it's on a journey, a creative journey, and it has created a set of experiences which are selected by your body and your personality. That's the way, the selecting mechanism, that's the programming that's gone into it, to the experiences you're going to have. And you keep going through them until you are so clear that even at the moment of death, Instead of, I'm dying, or even here I go, it's just another moment. Nothing special. Nothing special. To go into the white light of death means that you're already about three quarters of the way turned around while you're still alive. There's nowhere to stand. The third Chinese patriarch, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised, but make the slightest distinction and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. The purpose of life. So to me, this is the other, not the other, another uh, very, very uh, important part of what Ramdas's legacy is. And that's around to, it really is, it gives us the ability to lay back and relax. And he talks about it's a curriculum, right? And the soul has created this curriculum in order to awaken out of the illusion and of separateness. 
And that's the key, key, key. And at the same time, what Ramdas has added into this, over, and this is so well reflected throughout the book, that uh, is so very, very, thank God, he did it, humor. Okay, not taking oneself so self-seriously and creating the kind of space around our day-to-day uh, entrapment in our minds and our stories and our thoughts and so on. And having, having the perspective of this being a curriculum, and I think that came from uh, Emmanuel, who, his spook friend, he calls it. Yeah. Ramdas, you're in a, it's a curriculum. Take it. Well, I think that was also what he brought back from um, his yoga training in India. And, uh, you know, Haridas um, used to tell him things like, um, desire is the creator, desire is the sustainer, desire is the destroyer, desire is Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, it's the creation. And that um, that's part of that same thing of seeing uh, reality as a projection of our desires. And um, the piece that he quotes from the uh, uh, third Chinese patriarch at the end of this uh, excerpt, um, from the uh, uh, about the great way is not difficult mm. for those who have no preferences. And uh, there was that great, I mean, back when we did Love Serve, remember that record set, yeah. he, and that was the first reading he had done. Uh, recorded that uh, uh, piece, the third Chinese patriarch and uh, uh, Worth getting, everybody. It's fantastic. Uh, yeah. We should, uh, in fact, we should make them up and give them away. I know you've done it in the past. You've made them little booklets up or somehow. I don't know if you have any more. No, they're about gone. Uh, well, we're going to do something. Okay, whoever's listening out there, um, I it's promise. It's a download now, right? It's a it download, was, but uh, it's nice that Ramdas created these beautiful little booklets of uh, with the entire... Um, poem and it's so great yes but uh that is what uh maharaji i think you know partly through haridas and partly through the yoga training um that and and all of our uh buddhist training when we studied with goenka also yeah that was the um using the that um witnessing to see how your mind uh, creates your reality. Yeah. And that, I think his uh, ability to bring uh, his psychology training, uh, the work that he'd done with psychedelics and his yoga training all to bear in uh, teaching about that was really great. And with that uh, incredible humor. Yeah. Yeah, of not absolutely. taking it all too seriously, and yeah. we, you know, we're we're certainly all guilty of climbing into our uh, righteousness about who we think we are. Yeah, and yeah exactly. How it yeah. should all be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but just the idea that you you can just shift that perspective. You know, his later years and in Maui was all around 
shifting to loving awareness out of your head. The idea that it can happen and the idea that you're going to get lost over, over and over again. But there is always the coming back. We love uh, Sharon Salzberg, our, our close friend who... In every meditation, it's okay. You get lost, you can come back. And here, and Ramdas offers this, the idea of, it's a curriculum. See, that means like stuff that happens, sometimes not so fun, but it is part of the burning off of whatever needs to be burned off so that more spaciousness and freedom can occur. So, yeah, I think that's really... Uh, I mean, it goes along with the perspective of knowing, okay, I'm stuck in that thing that I think I am, and it goes along, you know. So it's uh, quite a, really quite an evolvement. Yeah, I love what that. What he represents. Uh, you know, that literal translation of nirvana or nibbana as burned out. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. stuff gets burned yeah. out finally. Yeah. And... Yeah. uh you know, it's it is again practice that uh, carries you slowly, as KD says, slowly but inevitably. Yeah. And I I love his analogy of uh, you know you you get on the train of uh, in his case chanting, getting into the kirtan and uh, the mantra, the names, and uh, that. Uh, analogy of uh, you get on the train and even though you're running in the opposite direction that the train is going the train is still going to the station yeah <laughs> and you're on it <laughs> yeah so be happy the there is a curriculum you we are taking it and it um uh it's just a matter of allowing it to be which is not easy because the vicissitudes look where we are now in, the, in a pandemic and a whole switch of government and um all the kind of racial Talk about justice realities yeah i mean it's easy and and that doesn't mean that you get into home base and go i'm home screw it all because yeah. there's only home for everybody if everybody's not home there's no home you know, so, uh, and that Ramdas represents in spades uh, his work in social action, his work with many different foundations, uh, including Seva, curing blindness in the world, and work with uh, death and dying. And that's where the final piece that we're going to play, which I think is uh, excerpt, is appropriate. It's called uh, Hold On Tightly, Let Go Lightly. And it's around death, but there's some other anecdotes that are really cool in this. And uh, yeah, let's go ahead and play this track. Now, perhaps the biggest fear of aging is the fear of death. And um, as long as you are identified with your separateness and you think that's what you are, you will have fear. And if you cultivate the part of you that is not identified with your separateness, you will have a place in you that is not afraid as well as the place in you that is afraid. You'll have a balancing of those things. And you might even get light enough. A Zen monk is dying and his, he hasn't written his death poems. Zen monks are supposed to write death poems. And his students say to him, Master, you haven't written your death poem yet. And he says, oh, I haven't written my death poem. 
and he grabs the brush and he calligraphies madly and he dies. And it says, birth is thus, death is thus, verse or no verse, what's the fuss? Uh, now, um, my guru helped change uh, my feelings about, I mean, I had had many experiences of what are called out-of-body experiences, so I had a sense that I wasn't this body anyway. But my guru was walking with one of his old devotees and he started, my guru started to laugh and the old devotee said, what are you laughing about? He says, well, so-and-so, this old woman devotee just died. And the friend said, what are you laughing about? What are you, some kind of a butcher? And Maharaji said to him, what would you like me to do? Make believe I'm one of the puppets? Would you like me to make believe it's all that real? Now the question is, where does somebody go? What happens? It's a mystery. When I sit with that mystery, all the experiences I've had, I don't even have a flicker of anything other than an appreciation that when we drop our body, we just drop our body. Ramana Maharshi's dying and the people say, don't leave, don't leave. And he says, don't be silly, where could I go? It's like I'm just selling the Ford, I'm not going anywhere, you know. No, don't leave us, don't leave us. It's just a shift of form. And if you have loved somebody in the love that transcends form, even for a moment, you and they aren't going anywhere. Your mind may say they've gone, but that's your mind. The minute you quiet down, go back into your heart, they're right there again. And love really does transcend death. There's not even a doubt in my mind about it. And you remember when I said to Emmanuel, my spook friend, Emmanuel, what shall I tell people about dying? He said, tell them it's absolutely safe. He said, it's like taking off a tight shoe. <laughs> See, that's the world I live in. So when I have a sense of who we are that is so much more vast, Buddha said, do you know how many times you have taken birth like this? He said, imagine a mountain six miles long, six miles wide, and six miles high. And every hundred years, a bird flies over the mountain with a silk scarf in its beak. And it runs the scarf across the mountain once every hundred years. In the length of time, it would take the scarf to wear away the mountain. That's how long you've been doing this. Sure gives you a different perspective, doesn't it? about time and the meaning of a life. Can you see a life as so precious and beautiful and still learn how to hold on tightly, let go lightly? How to not cling to it? How to be open to the mystery and open to the next part of it by saying, okay, and now this, and now this. In the Tibetan tradition, when you're dying, you are trained to stay in the moment. Instead of the model, I am dying, you are just in the moment. The earth element leaves, you notice heaviness. The water element leaves, you notice dryness. The fire element leaves, you notice coldness. The air element leaves, you notice the out-breath is longer than the in-breath. Just moment. 
moment, moment, now this, now this, now this. I have been sitting now with dying people for 10, 15 years, I guess. And I can tell you that it is the richest experience of my life. It is such incredible grace. The two things that awaken the same feelings in me are being present at a birth and being present at a death. And at that moment of death, when you feel the awareness leave the body, and when that person's connection to that which is beyond their body is deep enough because they have relaxed the mind that keeps grabbing at their separateness so that they can just let go very gently. There's not even a ripping. There's not a pushing. There's not a grabbing. The whole secret is to live this moment fully. Now this moment. Now this moment. So if you're in this one, how do you know the next one may be the one you die in? The best preparation for your dying is that you live this moment now, fully, moment by moment. And then one of them will be the one in which you drop your body. And it'll just be another moment, nothing special. It's not really that dramatic. We milk it so much. Such a big drama. Will he die? Won't he die? Shouldn't she die? Sure, we're all going to die. I want to tell you a secret. You're all going to die. But though you perish, you will not die. The whole secret is of extricating yourself from identification with form because all form corrupts. It all dies. You take care of it. You honor it. You clean it up. You keep it healthy as it is slowly corrupting. Hold on tightly. Let go lightly. So in the movie Ramesh, uh, Becoming Nobody, the, the end of that film that we did with Ram Dass, uh, that came out at the end of last year, many, many people experience that part, which is all around death and dying, um, as a profound part of this, this film. And it is a profound part of Ram Dass's legacy. For sure. I mean, it's stuff he's been working on since the early 70s. It, it, it was a through line, you know, through his whole mm -hmm. life. He was an example of, uh, of dealing with really, un, you know, through the stroke of really, really tough stuff. I mean, if you tell that story, of, oh, there he is on the floor with a broken hip and nobody in the house. And, uh, you know, he went through tons of stuff like that. By the way... Well, I is the stroke in particular, you know, that was that one where he, he was being brought into the hospital and he's looking up at the pipes on the ceiling and um, he's realizing he's not thinking about God and he's flunked the test. <laughs> and where was Maharaja? You out to lunch? What the hell is going on? Oh, God. Um, but um, he... Um, in terms of the power of that message in in that film and how it was uh, you know very much a, a through line for him uh, how do you how do you feel about how you represented that in in the book which is certainly substantial his relationship with 
Well, he talks about his work with people starting with when his mother died, which was, I think, the uh, point where he really realized that the the uh, culture uh, and the cultural systems around death were broken. And there was so much denial that his mother was actually dying until uh, he had this one breakthrough conversation with her when uh, he had stopped in at the hospital where she was kind of going downhill and uh, all of her doctors and even the rabbi were telling her, oh, you you know, you're getting better. You're going to be out of here in a week. And then they'd go outside the room and say, you know, she'll be dead in a week. And so Ramdas was very hurt by that level of denial, and he felt like he really wanted to change things after that. Mm. Um, and he uh, started working with uh, Stephen Levine and then uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was the founder of the hospice movement, and uh, Ramdev Borglum, Dale Borglum, who's still running a uh, the Living Dying Project in Marin. Yeah, which is home care, home hospice care for people, and but within in a spiritual context, much more than uh, the physical, you know, taking care. Um, and Ramdas sat bedside with many, many AIDS patients in the eighties when that was uh, such a a prevalent scourge. And uh, I'm kind of glad he missed this one, the pandemic. Yeah, say the um, least. Yeah. But it, I think it, for one thing, it lo loosened his fear of death. I uh, have never known anyone who had less fear of death. And what he says in the, uh, uh, that excerpt of his, what his spook friend Emmanuel says about uh Death is absolutely safe. Yeah. I always loved that. <laughs> he felt that way. Yeah. Um, and yet being with him when he died, you know, there was, it was, it was the first time I'd been with somebody when they, at that moment when they left their body. But, uh, you know, I'm not even sure it was a moment. It was more like a process. Hmm. And, um, you know, the profound thing for me was that, um, uh, I kept feeling him, you know, I mean, he was clearly not in his body. And I think he had left his body before his body even stopped completely. You know, there was sort of, uh, he, uh, his body was sort of had this reflex gasping for breath still at the end a couple of times. And I think he was gone before that. Hmm. Wow. Um, and th then, uh, we kept the body at the house, which was his wish for uh, three days after he had uh, died. And um, people were meditating in his room and his body was uh, covered with flowers on dry ice. And um, mm. it was very powerful. Mm. Um, and that statement about, you know, that... Um, Consciousness doesn't cease and love doesn't cease 
when the body goes. That's a, that is a very powerful statement for all of us to consider. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. it's the mystery for us in the body and in, in, on this plane. We don't know. Uh, when my daughter died, I, that was the dominant feeling for me is I don't know why this happened. I don't know what it means. I don't know where she is. I don't understand. And I still feel that way. But uh, there is that sense that um, um, it goes on and that um, this profound feeling that we are more part of a uh, cycle, a continuum. And um, yeah. I think that was that was a great uh, contribution to people and in, in, you know all of us to work on our own fear of death. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's in the movie Becoming Nobody. But some he's asked mm-hmm. by Jamie, "Are you looking forward to your death?" And he goes, "I'm not looking forward to my death. I'm looking forward to what happens after." So he was real with this. It wasn't, there was no bullshit. I mean, you and I sat with him. One of the times that I sat with you uh, while you were doing work on on the book, just hanging out, you know, just hanging out. It was around death. That was, Mm -hmm. that particular conversation was around death. He was so transparent and honest and uh, there just was no bullshit he was human relative you know i'm not looking towards fun dying are you crazy you know (laughs) there was no intellectual up level he was gonna although it's it it is interesting i wonder what happens after you know those bardos they talk about and all of that Mm. so uh yeah that's uh one of the first things when he first went to Maui, I don't know if you remember this, when he started living in Maui, I did a thing with, uh, or David maybe, David Silver, our good mm-hmm. friend, did an interview with Ram, Ram Dass around oh, yeah. I do remember that. honesty, mm-hmm. being honest with yourself. It was so, and we've never done anything with it, by the way. <laughs> I looked at it the other day. I'm going to go mm. run by it. But we are uh, so challenged in that way, because we are so stuck in what we think, you know, who we think we are, and so it's wrong to all the identity stuff and the stories we tell ourselves. Yeah. And it's so difficult. And of course, psychedelics help with all of that. But I, I really believe Ramdas's accessibility in that way, where he was really honest with himself. So we, that was when we first met him. It became easier. Okay, it's okay. We're human. We can, you know, we don't have to act like this uh, curriculum isn't real. And uh, so that, to me, that's one of the most profound parts. Well, helping people to, you know, deal with their own impending death, which we are all doing in some way or other. I mean, I, in that uh, excerpt, I think he is talking to people and he said, says, you know, flat out, well, uh, we're all going to die, right? Mm. <laughs> and, um, you know, th- there's not too much doubt about that. Well, and uh, dealing with uh, the fears and feelings and the cultural, uh, um, 
you know, kind of conditions around that. Um, and that's been really a, a pretty big contribution to helping people out. And, yeah, big time. Uh, you know, the psychedelic work with uh, death has been a, a, a great um, part of that uh, too. Yeah. And um, I think that, um, you know, if nothing else came out of his uh, teaching, helping people face death, um, was a pretty great contribution. Yeah. And it's on so many levels because of the different kinds of work he did. I remember they, uh, when they set up the uh, dying uh, house in Santa Fe and people with terminal illnesses were coming mm -hmm. there to try and to have conscious death. And um, it didn't work. Because the staff and the people like Ramdev who were running the house and were taking such beautiful care and were so inspiring and loving to people that they didn't want to leave. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, funny. <laughs> Not funny, but <laughs> poignant. Yeah. Poignant yeah. attachment, yeah. grasping. Yeah, yeah it's all right so down to the Ramdev does it in people's houses. Yeah, they're, right. They're not running their own <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Well, we're at the end of our time here. Uh, everybody, of course, uh, being Ramdas is... We may a, be at the end of our own time. Uh, well, okay. Uh, well, you never know. Um, being Ramdas is available everywhere, okay? Um, so it's a fantastic book, and... Uh, for those of you who have known Ramdas and have followed him over the years, it's, uh, of course, essential. And for those of you who maybe don't know that much about him, it, it's, uh, this is a great way to, to learn about a great soul. And, uh, I hope Ramdas. it's going to be kind of a parable for, you know, people in these times. You know, yeah. His life is really kind of an example of uh, how you can work on yourself. It's an example of somebody who gives a shit about other people and not just themselves. Okay, yeah. I hate to put it as crudely as that, <laughs> but it is so real. I mean, look at all those years we spent with him in Maui when he was in, I mean, just broken hip strokes. I mean, you, I mean, in and out of hospitals, just a lot of pain, and he never succumbed to it. Ever. He never complained either, which was pretty remarkable. Yeah, no, he used to say to me on the phone, I mean, because I talked to him all the time, I'd say, how you doing? Oh, no, just wonderful. He'd go, I, and I went, you are, you're lying to me because I happen to know that you've got a blah, blah. I go, yeah, well, you know, a little pain and suffering, you know. Uh, but someone who just really cared for, for really love everyone. Ram Dass I think he that. stayed around quite a lot longer. To yeah, just uh, and he said, out. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. So, uh, Ramesh, who without you, this book would not have been written because Ramdas was not writing anymore. He had not not that ability. So they sat and Ramesh recorded over ten years. It seems like a long time, but I guess it's real, huh? Yeah, <laughs> ten years. And put that together, yeoman's effort. Really, everybody owes Great you a joy, a debt of thanks. Really, yeah. so, so 
thank you for this. And uh, everybody, um, please. Thank you for this conversation. You're welcome. I'm enjoying. I'm enjoying. <laughs> uh, this is Ramdas here and now. And that's the beauty, is uh, as Ramesh indicated. Uh, there is only love and it is available every second, every moment. And uh, that includes Ram Dass's, uh, soul, which is with us. But we will be back with Ram Dass here and now. <laughs> Next time, meanwhile, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. So many great people and teachers and friends of Ramesh and mine who are doing wonderful podcasts and we add people all the time and turning into 2021 we're going to have some pretty fun surprises and new people that we're going to hang out with so we shall see you next time ram 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 this podcast is brought to you by the love serve remember foundation and ramdas.org we appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.